I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Back in December, Jim, I heard a moving talk by Bayan Bartning, who is our guest today. Uh, he discussed his mixed race heritage, and he said he abhorred racism and believed in seeing people as part of one human race, pro-human, he calls it. I remember that he was featured in a New York Times article back in 2021 about some of the drama that was playing out in some of New York's fanciest private schools. He had pulled his two kids out of one of the most prestigious schools in the city because he thought the school's anti-racist curriculum was actually encouraging them to look at themselves and others primarily through the lens of race and to see the world in a pessimistic kind of grievance-oriented fashion. Bion thought there must be a better way. So we hear his pro-human argument against intolerance and racism, Bion Bartning. You know, my belief and our belief as an organization as FAIR is that really we should be anti-racism, the ideology, and not anti-racist, the individual. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Bayan Bartning decided to launch an organization called FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. For his board, he recruited some of the leading voices in the heterodox movement, people like John McWhorter, economist Glenn Lowry, and three former How Do We Fix It guests, Barry Weiss, Daryl Davis, and Jonathan Haidt. Before getting involved in activism, Bayan worked as an entrepreneur, including co-founding the popular personal care brand, EOS. He spoke with us the day after the Martin Luther King holiday, and it was a good conversation. Bayan, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Thank you for having me here, Richard and Jim. So it's been nearly 70 years since the Brown versus Board decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that banned segregation in public schools. 60 years ago, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech that served as a great catalyst for the civil rights movement. Your group, FAIR, promotes what you call compassionate opposition to racism and intolerance. Tell us more about what that means. It really comes out of, I think, a, a burning need for us to reaffirm those core principles of the civil rights movement. And the core principles that we're talking about are 
are the principles of integration, healing divisions, of moving forward together as one people. Unfortunately, in the past several decades and probably over the last several years at a more accelerated pace, what's become popular is a different form of anti-racism, which is, is really going against the core tenets of, of the civil rights movement. In the introduction, we mentioned the term pro-human. What do you mean by that? Ultimately, for me, being pro-human means really embracing the humanity of, of everyone um, on this planet. And, and what that means is seeing each person as a unique individual with value and recognizing our shared humanity. So it's unique identity and shared humanity is the essence of being pro-human. Um, and the alternative to being pro-human, because people say, well, what's, what's anti-human? The reason why I think pro-human is a, is a fitting term for what we're advocating for, and really for what Martin Luther King advocated for, is that the alternative to being pro-human is to see people as representatives of identity groups. Um, and ultimately, that's dehumanizing to everybody involved. Yeah, I think a lot of people come into this conversation cold if they just sort of hear the words, words like, you know, tolerance and acceptance, and they they might not necessarily understand what it is that requires a new organization. You came across this issue kind of indirectly through your, your kids. Tell us how you became aware of the power of this new movement that sometimes goes by the name of anti-racism, or some people call it wokeness. When did it come into your life? Sure. I have two, uh, two young children, and they were enrolled at a, a private school in New York City called Riverdale Country School. And my wife and I had been very happy with the school, and it was just a warm, loving, welcoming community, you know, which was really aligned with our values. And I think what was really key to, to the school was this emphasis on character strengths. The school really emphasized character strengths like gratitude and optimism and grit. And, and to me, that was very consistent with my values, you know, both as a, an individual, but also um, as somebody who, um, who is Jewish. I think that the values and, and emphasis on character strengths at Riverdale were very consistent with what, what I believed and what I wanted to, um, to teach my own children. And so we were very happy with the school. And post the killing of, of George Floyd, the school really went in a different direction, which, you know, which really was antithetical to the, to the character values-based approach that the school had taken in the past. And, and the way that I saw it is instead of emphasizing gratitude and optimism, there, there was a shift toward you know, really this grievance mindset and pessimism. And, and this was done under the, the, the guise of being an anti-racist institution, which again, to me, that appealed to me. I mean, I'm, I'm mixed race myself. My father is uh, Mexican ancestry. My great-grandfather on my father's side is actually Yaqui Indian, so I'm one-eighth Native American. I'm Ashkenazi Jewish on my mother's side. I actually just got my 23andMe results back. So, um, so I, <laughs> it was fascinating. I'm I'm two percent Nigerian. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was it was actually pretty pretty neat to see. You know, I'm a mutt. I'm a lot of different things mixed together, and I've always loved that. I mean, I thought that that was that that was the the direction that we were 
heading as a country. And, and so what I saw is that the school was, was really trying to reinforce these rigid racialized categories and, and encouraging children to see themselves through this, this lens, this, you know, really discredited lens of race in the most simplistic way possible, you know, splitting kids into students of color versus other students. And so let's be clear. Yeah. These were segregated classes that we're talking about? No. So just to be clear, so Riverdale had not gone to that level. So Riverdale had a student of color group and there was a, a strong encouragement for students and also parents. So I was you know, invited to join the, the POC group, the Parents of Color group. There was a, an emphasis on students and parents joining their respective affinity groups and, and really you know, building relationships with people based on nothing other than, um, than skin color. I mean, literally skin color because it's, it's the Parents of Color group. And, and to me, that was just um, so backwards. But I, I really thought that the school was just misguided. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that what was happening at Riverdale was happening at so many other schools and institutions in our country. And so I was actually researching other approaches to anti-racism just to try to really try to bring uh, a different perspective to the table. And, and what I found pretty quickly is that uh, other perspectives were not really welcome. So within a very short period of time of just starting to ask questions, we were invited by the head of school to um, to leave. We we were sent an email that um, that that was had was dealing with something else. But you know, ultimately, the end of it, you know, we had started asking these questions about the school's new anti-racist approach, and the head of school suggested, I'll paraphrase. Maybe now is a, time, a good time to think about other schools for your family. Um, it's never good to be philosophically misaligned. And to me, that, that was out of left field. You know, we'd been very active members of the school community within the classroom. We'd been supporters of the school on every level. And it just seems bizarre to have the response to us raising just legitimate um, questions about the school's new approach to anti-racism, which, you know, again, was antithetical to, to my own personal philosophy. You know, I, I intentionally don't want my children to think in a racialized way because I think that that is going to take us backwards and we've made so much progress. And so to be invited to, to leave the school over just raising questions was, was really a, a difficult moment for us. You say that you don't want your children to think of... Uh, themselves in a, in a racialized way, and yet racism is still a destructive force in America today. And I know that what you are doing is anti-racist or or against racism. Um, so, what does the struggle for civil rights mean to you personally? Sure. Let me just say something real quick, because you use the term anti-racist and anti-racism interchangeably. And, mm -hmm. and frankly, yes, I probably yes. did at one point as well. I, I want to emphasize okay. that that's actually at, at the root, I think, of, of the difference in our approach with, um, let's say, mm -hmm. an Ibram Kendi, who has written the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And you know, my belief and our belief as an organization as FAIR is that really we should be anti-racism, the ideology, and not anti-racist 
the individual. I, I think that uh, a lot of my thinking on this has been influenced not only by Martin Luther King and other great leaders like him, but by Daryl Davis, who's very, very involved in FAIR. And Daryl, for those who don't uh, are not familiar with his work, has been working for decades um, as a Black blues musician, really befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, driven by, by curiosity, driven by the question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And through those relationships, he has actually um, helped people who many would view as irredeemably racist, um, you know, really become normal functioning members of our society. You know, at its core, our focus is on, on addressing the ideology of racism by seeing people as redeemable and seeing people as all part of one human race. Um, and what has shocked me is that the anti-racist ideology that in many respects, I think, is a deeply racist ideology, um, you know, actually uh, insists that, that the people see themselves as racialized and, and it is antithetical to this, this pro-human, inclusive, one human race approach and actually insists that calling, calling out the fact that we are all part of one human race is a racist thing to say, which, which to me is, is a really twisted way of looking at the world. You mentioned the work of Daryl Davis. Over the past 35 years, Daryl has been on a remarkable quest and personally persuaded more than 200 white supremacists to leave the Ku Klux Klan and other groups. Hear his story on episode 257 of How Do We Fix It? Let's drill down on this a little bit because, you know, as, as, as Richard says, a lot of the ideas that come from this extreme form of attempting to to address a history of racism through a kind of hyper race consciousness today that Ibram X Kendi, I mean, he he explicitly says the solution to past racism is is to discriminate in the present. He doesn't say we need to get beyond discrimination. He he wants to enforce it in law. What do you call this movement? Some people say they call it critical race theory. Other people call it woke. Is there a kind of an overall name that you can give to it? Uh, I mean, I've I've referred to it as an orthodox way of thinking. Um, you know, it's it's a very rigid way of thinking. But I I want to emphasize that I think that this problem extends beyond the issue of race. This way of thinking has infected our culture in a way. Which, which I think is, is quite unhealthy. It's really rooted in, a, in a, a set of pessimistic philosophies. And so at its core, I actually think that the, the root issue that we're dealing with that is antithetical to Martin Luther King's message is that a lot of these ideologies are, are coming from a place of learned helplessness and not from a place of hope. And so I think that Martin Luther King was an incredibly hopeful and optimistic person who was able to paint a picture, a dream, if you will, of what could be. And I think that that is antithetical to what a lot of these, these negative worldviews have. And these negative worldviews, let me just be clear, are not in, entirely or exclusively on the political quote-unquote left. I think that this grievance-based mindset, this negative pessimistic mindset has really 
infected our culture to a much greater degree. So I think that what what I'm trying to do with FAIR and what we're trying to do as an organization is to advocate for positive values, um, you know, really centered around gratitude and optimism. Ultimately, that is the way that we think you counter racism, intolerance, is by starting from a, an optimistic philosophy where you see people as good and not from a pessimistic philosophy where, where you see everything through this negative lens. And what is the impact of those negative ideas? It's undeniable that this has infected our culture, and it's undeniable that it's bad, not just for our society, but for individuals. I think it was Desmond Tutu who said that resentment, you know, which is really at the core of these ideologies, is like drinking poison and thinking it will kill your enemy. And what concerns me is it's come into our K through 12 schools is many educators now think that they're, they're helping the world, they're saving the world and they're helping children by teaching them what ultimately uh, amounts to resentment and learned helplessness. And I would argue that the opposite is true, that you're actually harming children and you're harming our society. This is How Do We Fix It? Our guest is Bayan Bartning. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. I thought you'd forgotten that, Richard. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Before we return to our interview, I have, a, I have a confession to make, Jim, and that is that we're pretty lousy at marketing ourselves, and that includes having a, a regular newsletter. So I've made this promise to myself that we are going to resume the How Do We Fix It newsletter starting later today as we speak. Wow. So by the time you listen to this, there'll be a new How Do We Fix It newsletter and and many more to come. So if you want to read it, then go to howdowefixit.me. And while we're doing a little bit of housekeeping, let's remember to remind people, which we always fail to do, Richard, that it really helps the podcast you like if you go to Apple Podcast or whatever your platform of choice is, rate and review us. Give us all those good stars. And that helps the visibility of the podcast and helps us be happy that we are actually reaching people and making a difference. After that commercial break, back to our interview. I'm really struck by this argument of optimism versus pessimism about the human condition. What are better guiding principles when teaching children about racism? The core principles that we're advocating for are fairness, understanding, and humanity. And that's really what we're seeing as as the way to overcome, to counter, and and just provide a, a positive path forward in the face of all these pessimistic philosophies. And so these are principles that are really central to every major belief system out there. Part of being human, part of this humanity pillar of, of the fair um, the fair principles is, is just recognizing that to be human means to be a unique individual. And, and so having that mindset that people are interchangeable members of identity groups I think that that is ultimately dehumanizing. And so that's something that, that this pro-human approach, you know, is directly in conflict, I would say, with the pessimistic philosophies. But I think it's a healthy conflict to have. And, and I think that, you know, people 
should be able to choose and say, do I really want to live my life by a set of values that ultimately is making me unhappy and is, I, I may think it's making the world a better place, but actually it's not. Or do I want, want to live by a set of principles that are going to make me a happy, fulfilled individual and are going to move our society forward? And I think we all agree, but we should stress that the educators who are teaching this pessimistic philosophy, they think they're doing something good. They're trying to help solve a longstanding, genuine problem. But you're looking at the impact that has on on children and on our society who don't get to choose to pursue this pessimistic philosophy. They're having it imposed on them. So what is it like for children to be educated that they live in an evil, racist country and that they should look at themselves and their classmates primarily through the lens of of race and, and oppression? How does that affect kids if they're taught that year after year? I mean, I think it it makes them depressed. It, it makes them resentful. You know, I think it can make them racist. You know, it, it can make them really hateful toward toward people because you're creating anger and and maybe you want it to be inwardly directed, but it, it could become outwardly directed as well. However important you believe the cause is that you're adv- you're championing, I think that ultimately you're harming those children because you're you're filling them with resentment and anger. And that can go in many different directions. But I think we are going to see, unfortunately, a resurgence of of racism in this country because I think a lot of these kids who are exposed to these ideas are becoming filled with grievance and filled with resentment and filled with anger. And, and also fear. I actually have a friend who teaches at that school, and she teaches high school kids. And she says that if any subject comes up that's remotely sensitive, everyone in the class completely clams up. She says they are constantly terrified they're going to say something that will ruin their lives. Does that ring true to you? 100%, yeah. I'm not going to lay the blame at the feet of these educators, to be clear. I think that there, there are larger forces at work in, in, in terms of social media, um, you know, just some very systemic issues and changes that have happened in our society that have made it really challenging to be to be a child and and to be growing up um i mean there's also some wonderful things i think about about some of these changes right um you know so i don't think it's all bad um you know frankly i don't even think that the attention being paid to these issues is a bad thing there are real issues deep seated long standing issues with race and racism in this country and i think that focusing on this issue those issues could be a really positive thing what about justice? Because justice and the cry for justice was very much part of the civil rights movement as it was led by Martin Luther King. 100%. And I think fairness is justice. You can't have fairness without justice. What we are advocating for is, is that we treat people fairly and impartially, that, that we treat people uh, without regard to their immutable characteristics. Justice does not mean that every person has the identical outcome, but justice does require that everyone have access to the same opportunities. You know, we should be aspiring to treating people fairly and impartially. But I would also say the reality is we are not. You know, that, that there are 
issues still today of injustice. It's not just along racial lines. I mean, if you're born into a home that is very low income, your prospects are going to be less promising than somebody who was born into a home that has a higher income. You know, that is a fact. And, and so I think there is work, there is progress that we still need to make around ensuring that we have justice, ensuring that we have equity or equality or whatever you want to call it, but ultimately that we are treating people fairly and impartially. So have your kids forgiven you for stirring up trouble and, and taking them out of their school? You know, I, I will say my, my kids have been wonderful. And honestly, we would not have taken them out of the school if, if they, you know, as, as young as they were, didn't already recognize that that was the best thing for them as well. So your son left the private school in New York and went to a public school on Long Island. That was a different experience. Actually, it was a good contrast. Uh, Thanksgiving from Riverdale, we got an email from my son's teacher, which was, you know, really just emphasizing, well, this is really a day of mourning for people who are Native American and this and that. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I probably have more Native American ancestry than anyone at Riverdale. You know, that's, that's my guess. I'm, I'm actually one eighth Native American and I don't feel anything negative, you know, should we learn? Should we teach? Should we understand the horrible things that have happened in, in history? A hundred percent. But Thanksgiving is not about that. Thanksgiving is a day of celebration. It's a family, it's of gratitude. And you're literally taking a, a celebration of gratitude and turning it into a commemoration of grievances. And that is, you know, to me, incredibly harmful. At this new school, public school, which was, I think, just doing things the right way, you know, the kids celebrated Thanksgiving the way that they should celebrate Thanksgiving. And, and, it, and, and I remember my, my wife and I literally burst into tears because we were just, we were so grateful for, for that difference. You mentioned briefly that there has been progress against racism in, in recent decades and that we are making some strides. Are you sensing some positive movement in our society towards genuine tolerance? Are you, are you optimistic for the future, despite what we've been talking about today? I am incredibly optimistic. I see us on a, on a forward path. I think that the progress that we have made, even you know, since, since my father was a child and, and, and the issues that he dealt with as a, an immigrant to this country, as somebody who, um, it, it, it was a unique situation where he was as a child living in, in Mexico on the Mexican side of the border, but going to school in the United States on the US side of the border. And the, the issues that he dealt with, you know, the, the overt discrimination and prejudice and bigotry that he dealt with, and to see how we have shifted culturally in two generations where there is just so much more acceptance and so much more, I think, recognition of the value of all these different cultures and, and, and different immigrant groups that have come to this country. I, I think we've made so much progress I mean, even if you look statistically at, um, you know, at survey data around people's attitudes toward 
um, you know, quote unquote, interracial marriage. Back in the in the fifties, those were single digits, low single digits of of percentage of people who believed that it was acceptable for people from different racial backgrounds to marry each other. And today it's 94%. I think that was a, a Gallup um, study. You know, Pew has data around actual rates of intermarriage. And, you know, we've gone from a society where, where people were fairly segregated to a society where I think Martin Luther King's dream of real integration is, is, has become a reality. I mean, I, I think that across every race group, there is intermarriage. I view what's happening right now as the last gasp, desperate efforts of, of a deeply racist, flawed worldview. And, and so I'm, I'm confident we are going to move past this, you know, but unfortunately, I think it's causing damage in the process. I feel good about where we are heading. I have concerns about where we are right now. Thank you for talking with us. And how do we fix it? Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. My unbartening. And next, before our conversation, a recommendation. Richard, I understand you have a recommendation from the cutting edge of modern literary culture. This is anything but cutting edge, Jim. But my recommendation, I think, is a source of comfort. Sometimes it's really nice to get cozy with a faintly familiar book. And this one is Travels with Charlie in Search of America, written by John Steinbeck in 1962. A lot of people have read it, but it's worth going back to it again. For anyone who loves dogs, Charlie was his French poodle, and as well as travel, this is a delight. We learn a lot about how America has changed and how it hasn't, and how in some ways we are a less divided people today than we were 60 years ago. Travels with Charlie is wise, witty, and utterly charming. You know, I became aware of that book very indirectly I used to be a rock climber, and there's this great rock climbing area north of New York City called the Schwangunk Mountains. And a lot of people put up those climbs were of a literary bent. So a lot of the rock climbs have literary names. There's one, uh, it's called Sound and Fury, and another one's called A Farewell to Arms, which is quite appropriate for that strenuous climb. And there was one called Travels with Charlie. So once I'd done that climb, then Ah. I I had to go and read the book. What I liked most about this conversation and also the first time I met Bayan is what he's for. He doesn't just define himself by what he's against. Um, he's upbeat and optimistic and sees that as a strength and sees the struggle for justice or fairness or inclusion of and humanity as one that is furthered by bringing people together rather than making people feel angry or resentful or against one another. That's the difference between you and me, Richard. I am interested in what he's against. It would have been so easy for most people just to go along with what was going on in that school, not make waves, not take the time to recognize that there was something new happening in education that ran counter to 
his values of, of tolerance, and then to really take the time and effort to create this new organization. And it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't really put his finger on a real problem. I mean, everybody says, therefore, things like tolerance and stuff. But he managed to identify a way that that positive impulse, those those positive goals were being, he believes, uh, somewhat corrupted. They were veering off in a dangerous direction. And so his effort to reclaim these words like you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and strip them from their modern political intentions and bring them back to their original meetings. That took a lot of guts. That that wasn't just oh yeah, let's all get together and hold hands and be be unified. It's actually a fight. His organization will be successful if it emphasizes the positive as well as criticizing what he's against. If they merely, and this happens over and over again right now, the way that political and social arguments are being framed, is that people are howling at each other um, rather than trying to bring people together. What's brilliant about his approach is that he brings us back to those original values of inclusion, of understanding, of tolerance. He doesn't need to emphasize the the negative message, but he did need to recognize that there was a problem and that that problem needed people to stand up to it and take enormous personal risk to do so. I'm sure he lost a lot of friends. I'm sure there, in a lot of settings, what he is saying is actually controversial, and he does a fantastic job of not stressing the controversial side of it and, and giving everyone a message that they're all welcome to the table to discuss this. Well said. This is How Do We Fix It? Our producer and sound designer is Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It? is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts in the common ground and bridging community. More at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 